Have you ever wondered where the gold in your jewellery comes from, or how it was obtained? What about the wood for your furniture, or the metals in your device that you're probably using now to listen to this podcast? I'm asking these questions because the illegal extraction of non-renewable resources like gold, timber, and rare earth minerals has become a very lucrative and widespread criminal sector across the world. But it is particularly prevalent in natural resource-rich South America, which scores the highest for non-renewable resource crimes in the Global Organized Crime Index. The situation has worsened over the past five to ten years, and while these type of crimes might seem victimless, they are anything but. In fact, the costs are multiple and extensive. Governments lose much-needed revenue. The profits allow criminal actors to fund other illicit activities, including markets for violence. And clearing land and vegetation for mining first leads to deforestation and then to land degradation, including the pollution of soil, air, and ground and surface water. Cutting down trees affect all of us, whether we're living in countries surrounding the Amazon or across the world. Welcome to the Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm your host, Dan Lewin. In this series, we'll take a deep dive onto the Global Organized Crime Index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. Today, we are joined by two guests who have worked extensively on non-renewable resource crime issues. Brem Ebus, a criminologist and investigative journalist, currently working as a consultant for the International Crisis Group's Latin America office, and Dr. Flavia do Amara Vieira, who is a senior researcher at Plataforma Chipo, an independent, woman-led Brazilian think tank where she leads research and advocacy projects related to environmental crimes in the Amazon. To start our conversation, I asked Flavia to explain the link between organized crime and environmental crime. From my research, I have been noticing increasing reference to the connections between organized crime and environmental issues. In Brazil, recent data has indicated a rise in environmental crimes, and this issue is related to a process of weakening of legislation and environmental agencies, which have suffered unprecedented budget cuts and staff reductions at the national level under the previous government. These setbacks have contributed to a change in the profile of environmental crime, especially in the Amazon. This allowed the expansion of organized crime networks in the region, benefiting from environmental crimes, as well as other organized illicit activities, such as drug, arming, and human trafficking. We are talking about crimes such as illegal economic activities, and also about supply chains blended by illegal activities, such as illegal mining, fishing, logging, wildlife trafficking, which have cross-border dimensions. And these activities are increasingly characterized by specialized knowledge, well-defined division of labor, and a complex nature that involves machinery, people, illicit flows of money and assets, corruption, and occurrence of violence. These dynamics are evident, for example, in illegal mining and illegal logging activities. And all of that contribute to high levels of violence in the region, 
In 2021, the lethal violence rate in small cities of Amazon remained higher than the national average, demonstrating an excessive violence scenario throughout the, the region. That's really interesting. And in the Global Organized Crime Index, you know, seven out of 12 countries in South America scored eight or higher out of 10 when it comes to non-renewable resource crimes. It's quite high. And also the regional score itself is 6.38. And that's the highest in the world. What is it about this this continent or at least you know this region particular region where you have these cluster of countries that has such high rates of these crimes Brent can I come to you first so what we observe in South America with regards to non-renewable resource crimes is that first of all there's weak and complicit law enforcement this for example applies to all Amazon countries but let's take Peru for example where the anti-narcotics I basically threw the towel in the ring because they're not working anymore in the Amazon and focusing on the Andean region, which means that there is enormous logging for the growth of illicit crops like coca. In Colombia, park rangers cannot even go to their own national parks because guerrilla groups impede them from entering because they're trafficking drugs and running illegal gold mining rackets in these national parks. In Brazil, we see that six out of nine Amazon states are run by Bolsonarista governors uh, who really oppose Lula's stance on Amazon protection. So we see there's, that there's this huge governance issue in the Amazon where governors make beautiful promises but are maybe not able to implement it. This, of course, has to do with corruption since we see that environmental authorities in myriad countries enable the legalization of illegal timber, illegal timber, gold, but also law enforcement components are complicit with gold trafficking networks, for example, in Venezuela. Poverty is also a huge driver of these resource crimes in the Amazon. You see the remote communities are instrumentalized by crime groups and lack other livelihood um, alternatives. And therefore, they need to participate in economies that prey on their own natural habitat. Especially during the pandemic, we saw that indigenous communities, even more than before, were obligated due to the situation to get involved in illegal economies like the growth of coca for cocaine production. They started carrying hefty packages of drugs through the Amazon across country borders because their communities have grown quite rapidly and the state hasn't been been able to respond on one side to their development and basic needs, but they've also not been able to, to respond to all the threats to these ethnic communities in the Amazon that absorb them in these uh, illicit economies. We also see that the international demand for cocaine and gold has grown, which of course puts more strain on regions like the Amazon. And organized crime groups became more professional, have the know-how, the context, the international network and resources to really broaden and widen the, the scope of their illicit economies in the Amazon. Ram, can I come to you again to talk specifically about gold mining? Because I understand that that is one of the biggest forms of criminality in terms of environmental crimes or non-renewable you know, resource crimes. Can you tell us why that's the biggest form of crime and how, how big are we talking about? It is very difficult to quantify illicit economies and black markets because they're designed to not have a paper trail. So these estimates are very broad. Honestly, for me to prepare an answer was very difficult, but I'd like to refer to the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, which basically estimates for illegal, illegal gold mining in Latin America to be worth between 3 billion and 12 billion US dollars a year. And as you can see, the, the minimum and the maximum estimate uh, 
is quite a difference. It's very hard to know how much money this represents. Also, because the price, for example, of gold is different in informal markets. It's not market price. They use different calculations. And we also need to take into account, like, adjacent illegal economies, for example, how fuel is supplied for the legal gold mining sector, the whole transport around it with boats or illegal uh, airplanes, etc. But I think to understand the, the scope of the legal gold mining sector, first we need to, to, to dive into the law enforcement response, which hasn't been able to, to keep up or cope with what's actually going on. What we see in all Amazon countries, if something is done about illegal gold mining, are these sporadic law enforcement operations where they fly into the Amazon, destroy some illegal mining equipment, and then leave again for six or 12 months before coming back, if coming back at all. Knowing that the revenues generated by legal gold mining are so hefty that the owners of these projects can basically buy equipment again and reinstall an illegal gold mine within a month. So it's very hard for law enforcement to keep up. We oftentimes feel that these operations are just for the picture to basically show international media that something has been done whilst they know that it's very difficult. So first of all, I think that it's really important to actually go after the financiers of these illicit economies, which are living in the capitals of the respective Amazon countries. What we also see is that illegally mined gold is just too easy to legalize and launder into the legal supply chain. So it's very difficult to, 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 to differentiate between legal gold and illegal gold because illegal gold at a certain stage will become legal gold and then it's untraceable. And that's also difficult to enable us to calculate how big the economy is. And we've seen that how versatile the gold mining industry is as well, especially during the global pandemic with no air traffic, with closed country borders, uh, with many economic sectors basically being paralyzed. Illegal gold mining didn't stop. The ones with access to dollars, especially in cash, were continued to buy cheaply and to stockpile. And since many of these gold trafficking routes are across country borders over land routes, gold trafficking also continued during the, the pandemic. So the ones who were in the right position were able to make a killing on the market during the global COVID pandemic, whilst other sectors were basically being paralyzed. Now, what you said particularly about how these operations are so profitable, despite the fact that it's so hard to put an exact number you know, to, to these activities. It's so profitable that like, authorities confiscate or destroy it and then you can start again. And I've seen that some reports have said that, you know, profits from illegal mining rival that of the drugs trade. And that to me is really shocking. Can you perhaps tell us where are the hotspots where this is happening? So, of course, the three major coca-producing countries uh, and coca as the main ingredient for the fabrication of cocaine are Colombia, Peru and Bolivia, which are three countries that are also Amazon countries and three countries that have vast deposits of minerals and precious metals like gold. Nevertheless, it's also not a coincidence that we find the cocaine trade and illegal gold mining in the same regions in these countries because it's very easy to launder the gains, the profits of cocaine trafficking through illegal gold mining or legalizing it through illegal gold mining. What we see, for example, in Colombia is that in the Amazon, we have a certain amount of illegal gold mining, especially alluvial gold mining or with river dredges. But a lot of gold historically has been mined in the Andean region, mainly in hard rock underground mines. Uh, but we also see alluvial gold mining in Colombia's Pacific on the coast, especially in the department of, of Chocó. 
I'm sure that Flavia will tell us more about what's going on in Brazil, but it's interesting to highlight Venezuela as well, which historically is not a gold mining country because they have the, the most significant crude oil reserves in the world. And basically their whole economic and political model is based on the rancher model on, based on the oil industry. But in the wake of the collapse of the oil sector in Venezuela due to mismanagement, corruption and international sanctions, we saw that Venezuela's economy imploded and then they basically shifted their rentier model, deepening it, betting on large-scale uh, gold extraction in Venezuela itself. But the state hasn't been able to control that sector. And basically the legal framework, which is called the decree of the Orinoco Mining Arc, is a legal jacket put around an illicit sector run by non-state armed groups and criminal syndicates completely in control of illegal gold mining in Venezuela. And then we also see that Venezuela is one of the main transit countries for, for cocaine coming from Colombia. And then again, we see that these sectors intersect because oftentimes for cocaine trafficking and gold trafficking, they use the same routes, it's the same stakeholders, and even the money flows intersect. Now, Bram, you just now talked about the kind of criminal actors that are involved in illegal gold mining in Venezuela. What about in other countries? Are there, you know, certain criminal groups that exercise control over this industry in other Amazonian countries as well? And if you could also talk about what kind of control do they have uh, in the trade, that would be great. When it comes to the involvement of organized crime in the legal gold mining sector, I can typify three different phenomena that we're identifying. As previously discussed, illegal gold mining projects are owned or taxed by organized crime, or they get involved in the gold trafficking. But there's also taxes on the legal gold mining industry. But first, when it comes to the owning of mining equipment, being it river dredges or backhouse, uh, we see that Colombian guerrilla organizations like the ELAN, the former FARC or actual FARC dissidents, own mining equipment, both in Colombia and Venezuela. What is produced is theirs. What we also see is that the same groups in Colombia, Venezuela, but also in Brazil, because we know that FARC dissidents on occasion enter rivers that cross the border to Brazil and start taxing illegal mining dredges is the economy of basically commissioning or demanding a percentage of the gold production per month per piece of mining equipment, which can be a dredging boat or a backhoe, which needs to be shared with this non-state armed group or crime syndicate, which they call a vacuna, a vaccine, which should be a protection payment. For example, I pay the paramilitaries so that the guerrilla doesn't tax me. But unfortunately for these illegal minings, miners, the system doesn't work anymore. So in one week, you can get the paramilitaries taxing your illegal mining operation. And the next week, the guerrilla comes. So you end up paying to multiple sectors, including sometimes law enforcement forces who are corrupt and participate in the illegal gold mining economy. And then what we also see, and this especially occurs in Colombia's Pacific coast areas or in the Andean regions of Colombia, is that gold mining multinationals are taxed. In the mining industry, we know that the, the Gulf clan or the Gaitanistas, as they call themselves, are taxing gold mining multinationals and they pay them a hefty fee, um, a percentage of their gold production. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the, how it works, who's involved, but where does the illegally mined gold go? Because it sounds like there's a lot of it. I mean, who's consuming it? Where is it going as you say, there's a lot of it and it goes everywhere. 
We've been investigating only a few parts of the gold supply chain, and we see that there is movement within the Amazon region. For example, Venezuelan gold, which is sanctioned by the US Treasury Department, therefore has become toxic on international markets. So what happens is that Venezuelan gold is trafficked to all the neighboring countries, especially Colombia, the Caribbean islands, Guyana, Suriname, and Brazil. And there it's added to the legal supply chain with fake paperwork. But then it can be commercialized as, for example, Brazilian or Colombian gold, and therewith it loses its toxicity on the international markets and can be sold to refiners in Miami, Salt Lake City, Canada, Belgium, Switzerland, or UK. So we see that Venezuelan gold ends up everywhere, but we also see that the gold legally mined in countries like Colombia, Brazil, the Guyanas, um, is funneled into the legal supply chain and reaches global clients. These refiners have been identified, for example, also in the Middle East, India, and there have been buyers in, in Africa, in countries like, like Guyana. So I think it's very important to, to, to note that this gold illegally mined in, in Latin America ends up on all the global markets. And therewith, it basically also indicates that it's very difficult to halt these illegal gold flows. Venezuela, for me, is a very interesting case due to these international sanctions. What we saw is that when Treasury Department sanctioned Venezuelan gold, state companies couldn't export it anymore to markets in Europe and North America. But then the the trade was basically pushed into illegal hands of the Guerrilla Group, the ELN, which is also active in mining districts in Venezuela, but which also features on the list of terrorist organizations of Treasury Department who sanctioned the Venezuelan gold market. So we see all these ineffective measures. And what we also think is important to mention is that Voices in Washington, a neighboring country of Bogota, which has been at odds with Caracas during the last two governments. And they blame geopolitical allies of Venezuela, like in the Middle East, China or Russia, from buying illegal Venezuelan gold and financing the crisis in Venezuela. But when we actually track and trace the gold from Venezuela, we see that it's laundered in the, in the neighboring countries. And then it goes to North America, then it goes to Europe. And this, this for me, changes the whole debate. Is gold mining also being used to launder drug money? And if that is happening, can you explain how that's being done? Gold mining and the gold industry is probably the biggest blessing for the cocaine sector because it's so easy to launder narco profits through illegal gold mining or legal gold mining. There are different methods. For example, the mixing of illicit funds with legitimate gold purchases. Criminals may acquire illegal gold using drug money and then mix it with legally acquired gold to make it harder to trace the illicit funds. Another method is trade-based money laundering. Criminals may manipulate invoices and transactions related to the export and the import of gold in order to disguise the proceeds of drug trafficking. Then we see in most of these countries, shell companies and front businesses where criminals create those shell companies or front businesses within the gold mining sector to legitimize the flow of funds derived from drug traffic. What we also see is the investment in illegal mining uh, equipment, let's say backhoes, river dredges, etc. When you invest in illegal gold mining projects, all the gold you extract is profit already. And since it's so easy to legalize, since gold doesn't have DNA like a diamond, which you can investigate in a laboratory and knows where it comes from, because you can smell the mixed gold from different origins. I mean, if you invest all your money in illegal gold mining, you know how to launder illegally mined gold, then this is already a way to launder the profits of drug trafficking. Flavia, I'm coming back to you. You've been nodding a lot while Bram was talking about, and I now want to focus specifically on gold mining 
in Brazil, where, as I understand it, is unfortunately thriving. Can you talk about whether this booming trade in gold mining is a new or an old phenomenon in Brazil? Gold mining is actually a very old phenomenon in Brazil and has been part of the country history since the 18th century, with period, periods when it was more and less important for the Brazilian economy. However, in recent years, we have seen an intensification of illegal mining operations that use that heavy machinery that I already mentioned, such as backhoe loaders and draggers, to increase productivity, resulting in significant environmental impacts. These draggers are very powerful, and more than one time they cause deaths, including indigenous children. These areas lack environmental impact studies and the illegal miners often invade, invade indigenous land and conservation units. Also, there are a lot of social aspects. The mining workers are usually poor people who seek opportunities to improve their lives in a region marked by poverty. But maybe far from there, there are groups that are financing this operation with which are profiting a lot from this contest that involves so many dangers. This chain has expanded due to the already mentioned budget cuts to environmental agencies, as well as a lack of presence of the agencies charged with the protection of indigenous lands. This year, the humanitarian tragedy experienced by the indigenous people Yanomami gained widespread media attention. Their land was invaded and so contaminated by mercury that cases of malnutrition and hunger exploded. After this scandal and with the new government of Lula, new policies started to be developed to expel the invaders and increase surveillance and control of the gold market in Brazil. This not only happens with the Yanomami people, but illegal mining has expanded to several areas of the Amazon, causing environmental degradation and illness and leading to an increase of, in other crimes, such as sexual exploitation of women and children. It's only with a strong investment in environmental enforcement and control of this commodity that we can fight this phenomenon. What about the other gold? So we've talked about, you know, the gold as in the mineral, but one of the biggest things with Brazil is the Amazon, right? The trees of the Amazon forest. And I think over the past decade or so, we have been reading and hearing about deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon. Can you also talk about what is the latest situation there? Okay, in my organization, Plataforma Cipó, we have already done extensive research on the illegal extraction of timber and deforestation, which are widespread crimes in the Amazon. In Cipó report number seven, written by my colleagues Renata Ribeiro and Luisa Falcão, we identified that lender ownership is central to understanding and addressing environmental crimes and related issues in Brazilian Amazon. The lack of land regularization, the lack of legal guarantee to land rights poses significant risks to local populations. Therefore, analyzing environmental crime in isolation is not enough to unravel this, the complex chain of illicit, illicit activities. The lack of documents put at risk local communities to invasion and exploitation of their resources without state protection. 
In another study made by myself and Luisa Falcão, we sought to understand operations to f- that fight environmental crimes and we identified the need for better, better traceability of timber, the use of satellite technology to identify illegal deforestation hotspots, and the need for international cooperation with countries that purchase the timber as ways to fight this crime. Since illegal timber extraction is a very common crime in Amazon, it represents also unfair competition for those who work with legal and certified timber. And, you know, just now you talked about how since the Lula administration started, there has been some sort of work or enforcement in terms of gold mining. What about in terms of deforestation? Have you seen any improvements at all, you know, with the change administration? Yes, there are many changes happening. Lula new new government faces significant challenges, including fiscal constraints, the extreme right, and the need to rebuild the federal institutions that were dismantled by the previous government, especially in the area of environmental protection and human rights. But since his first day of this new term, the new president has signed decrees that restored the Amazon fund, the plan to combat deforestation and allow it the restructuring of the Environmental Council. The Ministry of Environment has been renamed for the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change in a clear nod to new priorities. In these first five months, IBAMA, our federal environmental agency, had its monitoring capacity already increased by more than 200%. Even even though it's a government in coalition with center-right parties, we in civil society feel that are advances and we are experiencing a moment of hope with the creation of uh, a ministry for indigenous peoples led by a highly respected indigenous leader in Brazil, Sonia Guajajara, and with increased investments in environmental agencies. Despite the contradictions, it seems that in this new government, voices for progressive transformations have the conditions to work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, the challenges are many and varied, but it is also good to hear that at least there are efforts to sort of rebuild, you know, after four years of of almost what seems like systemic dismantling of protections and agencies and, and work that has been done before, right? Now, I want you to perhaps briefly talk about what are the consequences that if we lose the Amazon or if it reaches the stage where we lose the Amazon, uh, where it's so hard to get it back, you know, what are the implications? Yes, yeah, a very sensible issue. The Amazon rainforest in itself produces around 20 of the world's oxygen, So any deterioration of the Amazon's conditions is definitely a cause of concern, not just for Brazil and its neighboring countries, but for the entire planet. And if we add climate change concerns, we understand how these issues can be felt globally. Thanks for that, Flavia. Bram, can I come back to you to also essentially answer the same question, but, you know, from a regional perspective, what are the impacts of the environmental crimes that you've been seeing across the Amazonian countries? 
I definitely want to echo everything that Flavia said. I mean, the Amazon has a global function on one side as a, as a provider of oxygen, but is also one of the most important carbon sinks. The Amazon has a cycle that maintains itself known as the, the floating rivers, but there will be a tipping point in which I prefer not to elaborate too much because it's not my, my, my specialty. But when that tipping point is reached, uh, the Amazon will start deconstructing or destroying parts of its own ecosystem. And therewith, instead of absorbing CO2, it will become a net emitter. And therewith, not only loses its functioning as a provider of oxygen, as a carbon sink, but it will actually become an emitter and, and accelerate global climate change. Of course, this has international repercussions, but it will be heartfelt within the Amazon, uh, which is not a vast rainforest without people. I think uh, there, there's, there's tens of millions of people living in the Amazon. And what we will see is um, a major amount of uh, ethnic communities losing their traditional livelihoods. Seasons of floodings, uh, seasons of extreme rain connected to these floodings or uh, seasons without rain. So what we might see is that the populations living in the Amazon won't be able to sustain themselves as they've done for hundreds of thousands of years. And we will see migration within the Amazon. What we also see is that over the back of all these climate and environmental disasters, organized crime always knows how to benefit. We know that they're in the vanguard of every economic development. And they've been able to construct supply chain relations to conduct some kind of criminal diplomacy with other groups across country borders, move their own troops across country borders, and basically teach a lesson to governments enable to work with other governments in the Amazon region to counter all these threats posed to the ecosystems and its inhabitants. So we definitely think that climate change and environmental destruction can cause climate migration, more violence and violent competition. What we also see is that since the world is aware of the functioning of the Amazon, since there's a lot of money involved for Amazon protection by, for example, the United States and European donors. But first of all, Countries need to control the Amazon. And one way of thinking is that we need to change the economies, change the economic activities. Then we speak about green economies, the energy transition. But even there, we see organized crime always being one step ahead. There are deposits of rare earth elements of rare metals and metalloids in the Amazon. We see that non-state armed groups are already positioning themselves in those areas. When we speak about the economy of carbon credits, which is a very difficult sector, as many mafia-like actors are involved, we also see that when projects somehow work in the region, but if these areas are under control of non-state armed groups, in Colombia, for example, by the Gulf clan or the Gaitanistas, is that they demand a cut of the income generated by carbon credits from these communities to be paid to organized crime. So they know how these new green economies and the energy transition also can finance their criminal control and the violence they perpetrate. Yeah, that sounds, you know, both fascinating and horrifying in that they're finding all these new avenues, right? Even with the new efforts to green global economy, that there, there, there are always new ways for criminal actors to take advantage and profit from it. Whenever we talk about, you know, at least in the Global Organized Crime Index, we talk about criminality and criminal scores. And the other side of the coin is the resilience scores, right? And, and that is, includes governance, you know, law enforcement, uh, but also communities' ability to resist 
or sort of fight back or defend themselves from these activities. Unfortunately, South America in general scores fairly low when it comes to resilience. So, you know, my question to both of you is, is there anyone who's actually, you know, stopping this flow of criminal activities or working to stop it? Or perhaps it's actually more accurate to ask whether it is possible to even stop what's happening because it has been going on for, you know, th- th- this is not a new phenomenon, right? This is a, a historical problem. It has been going on for quite a while. Lots of factors contributed to this. Is it possible to stop it? Or is it, are there people who are working to stop it? Bram, can I start with you perhaps from a regional perspective? I think it's very important to not reinvent something that exists already. And this is the capacity of local communities to be resilient, to be able to fend off and identify threats to their territories. They, of course, not always can put it off. And this is when we see that sometimes whole communities are absorbed by organized crime or recruited or forcefully recruited into non-state armed groups. But we also see other indigenous communities who are much better organized, uh, who have peaceful indigenous guards controlling a territory. And I think Flavio already made a very good point about the importance of technology, for example, satellite imagery, to detect and give early warnings about illegal mining deforestation. But we also can capacitate local communities like indigenous groups or Afro-Colombians or campesino or farmer communities, capacitate them with training uh, using GPS equipment to enable them to control the territories, to enable them to check in with law enforcement when they can geo-localize an illegal mining project or the presence of timber traffickers. So I think that instead of turning those local communities into an enemy, they are main ally in forest conservation and we need to help them and give them all the tools they need to become the forest stewards that they've been for for thousands of years but then of course there are budget restraints and there are other issues with security for example sometimes the security situation deteriorated so much already that if we equip local communities with gps equipment to map illicit economies they can become an objective for organized crime and they can kill those people so we also need to assess constantly how how much can we demand from local communities, how much can we make them the protagonists of Amazon conservation without putting their lives at risk? Those are really great points. Flavia, I mean, Bram talked a lot about the importance of empowering and supporting local communities, right? And from where you sit, you know, one of the organizations that you work with is a community organization. You, you're right down there doing research, working with them. What is, yeah, what's your perspective and what's, what's your view based on your experience? Well, I totally agree with Ren, and uh, for me, I I see that there are several groups working on to stop this flow. I think it's necessary to highlight and value the work also of of employees of environmental agencies and justice agencies that are really committed to their care causes, as well as the work of civil society, social movements, and other indigenous leaders, etc., Furthermore, the new government now in Brazil is encouraging also new fronts of towards multilateralism. And in August, the Amazon Summit takes place in Brazil, in Belém, an event that brings together Amazonian countries to develop uh, forms of cooperation regarding public policies. And environmental crimes would be one of the main issues that would be, will be in, the, in this agenda. 
One of the things we've read a lot about when it comes to environmental defenders and investigative journalists, you know, looking at these environmental crimes in the Amazon or in South America is that it's very, very dangerous work. We've read from lots of different organizations, you know, like Global Witness, about how environmental defenders and journalists are, you know, routinely harassed, threatened, and you know, in some cases killed for trying to expose illegal mining in in the Amazonian countries or, you know, deforestation in the Amazon. Is anything being done to support their work? Yes, journalists, local populations, people affected by illegal activities, those whose lands have been invaded, they all have been in the front of a battle for a long time. And that, that is very sickening. I think we always need to bring these issues up, strengthen their resistance networks, expand knowledge about these threats, and also think about how to build uh, international solidarity networks and to create funds for them keep doing their job, what they do for their lives, because it's a con- it's it's their work is connected for with within their their lives, and. I think it's a collective work and all of us should be involved. And Bram, are there any efforts at a regional level as well to, you know, support and protect these people? I mean, I can talk a bit from my own experience because I've been working in the Amazon as a journalist and investigator for many years and I'm running a team of, of local investigative journalists now. What we sometimes see in the Amazon that Organized crime groups basically declared a, a full-blown war on their adversaries to control local economies, and they're able and willing to conduct harm to anyone who meddles with their interests. I was arrested myself in Venezuela in 2017 when I was looking into gold and coal and trafficking. Uh, we've been threatened and intercepted in Brazil this year on a river while looking into illegal mining, and both times this was done by corrupt state actors. I mean, for us, it has been much more easy um, to navigate areas and broker entry with criminal actors, people active in illicit economies. And the real threat often comes from complicit state law enforcement forces, uh, which is very grave, especially when this happens in countries where the central government promises to clean the Amazon from illegal actors and basically protect the ecosystems. This, this indicates that governance is such a huge issue. We also think that special attention should be given to beefing up security protocols for the ones working and living in the Amazon. I mean, in, in our own journalistic project, we wrote a new security protocol for all our collaborators, and they all go with GPS equipment when they go to the field. We follow up constantly, and this is not an exaggeration because we need it to activate the security protocol and the response team. But of course, we are people who, as, as journalists, oftentimes we go and have the ability to leave the area. But especially people living in the Amazon who share towns and communities with the violent perpetrators, they need special attention and protection. And we see that government budgets are just not up to date um, to cope with the real threats. And also they don't take really serious what's going on because they're not present to identify the adversaries and real risks in the Amazon. So we, we definitely think that on a regional level, special attention, for example, in a conference that Flavia mentioned in August this year uh, between the presidents of Amazon countries, special attention should be given to investigators, journalists, community defenders, human rights activists in the Amazon because they're being killed every day. 
this is where we leave it for this episode of The Index. A big thank you to Bram and Flavia for joining us today. In the podcast notes, you'll find some links to work by both contributors and their respective organizations. In addition to that, you'll find links to the country profiles for all South American countries from the OC Index. Remember that the Global Organized Crime Index is a free resource and it's available to everyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. You've been listening to the Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thin Lewin. Thanks for listening. Thank you.